Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We thank you that it is perfect, that it is powerful. We thank you for your mercy that warns us away from sin, that calls us to flee from the coming judgment, to find refuge in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray that even through that warning, even through the preaching of the gospel today through Genesis, that you would indeed command us all, enable us all, free us all to enter in with Jesus Christ. So cleanse me of sin, a love of self. Fill me with the Spirit that I might speak your word with clarity and boldness as you say I must. Help us to hear with eagerness, for we know that the Son of Man comes suddenly, just as he did in the days of Noah. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. That there are certain days in every person's life that simply stand out. You can think about your own personal life. There are birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, days that simply stand out. And you have the same thing within our own nation's history. Think of July 4th, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. April 12th, 1861, the ignition of our nation's Civil War. December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. President Roosevelt said as the Japanese attacked U.S. forces at Pearl Harbor. And there's June 6, 1944, a day that has come down to us as the legendary D-Day Allied Force assault on the beaches in Normandy. It was the day of days that was intending to bring an end to the conflict that had raged in the world. And in a very real sense, what we turn our attention to this morning in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 can be called the day of days. A day that was indeed intended by God to end a conflict that was raging in the world at that time. If you just glance forward from where we just read to verse 11 of chapter 7, you'll notice God gives us, he gave through Moses, even his people, the date of this day of days. We're told in the 600th year of Noah's life, and in the second month, and on the 17th day of the month, the flood came. Surely it was a day that Noah's family never forgot. Clearly it's a day that the nation of Israel was to never forget. And I do hope today that it's a day that you too, for reasons we shall soon see, never forget. As we come this morning to a passage that many people throughout the ages have taken to be nothing more than just this spiritual mythology, this holy mystery, but we do believe we're looking into a story of truthful history, full of gospel theology, because this is a passage that's meant to tell us two simple truths, and we can kind of combine them together into a simple sentence, which represents the main theme of our text, God will judge sin and save his people. God will judge sin and save his people. So if you're in here this morning, what you need to see from this text, if you are not a Christian, is that there are only two possible outcomes for any person who has ever lived. In a reverent sense, we must say, you can either sink or swim. You can either fall beneath the judgment your sin deserves, or rise according to God's sovereign grace to salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. God will judge sin, the flood teaches us, and he will also save his People And so, kids, as we're looking into this famous passage, I want you uniquely maybe to give attention 
So what this text tells us about God. He is the primary character, of course, of Scripture, and therefore, of course, of this flood account as well. It tells us that God is full of truthfulness, righteousness, holiness, justice. As one commentator said, the Lord is long-suffering, compassionate, loving, and faithful. But this passage also shows that He is demanding, insistent, terrifying, and dangerous. So students, I imagine that maybe some of you along the way, as you continue to try to walk in faithfulness with Jesus Christ, might have something of a skeptic come up to you. They don't believe in the Bible, but they know enough of the Bible to say, how can, how could a loving God send such a flood on the earth? I want you to know from our text today that the proper response to such a sincere question is offering up of another question. How could a righteous God not flood the earth because of its sin? So we're looking largely at three chapters this morning, so I just want to pay attention to three realities about God, how God relates to His people. We'll see in chapter 6 that God warns His people. Chapter 7, God protects His people. Chapter 8, through almost the end, God delivers His people. So if you weren't with us last week, you can just glance back to the previous eight verses of Genesis chapter 6, is which what we covered. Uh, there we found out that just a few generations beyond Adam and Eve and their children, the world was full gone, full bent in sin. What we find out in verse 5 is that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth to such an extent that every thought of mankind was only evil continually. It was a nation, it was a people, it was a world far gone in sin. And so God says he's got a plan to deal with it. And his plan is quite terrifying. He says, I'm going to blot out mankind from the earth. We said last week that that verb blot is very much like our modern way of thinking about erasing. Just as a teacher might erase a whiteboard, God says he's soon going to erase evil from the world. But there was one man, you'll notice in verse 8, one man that found grace with God. And it's to that man the story continues to focus. You'll notice as we see how God warns his people, look at verse 9. We're told these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Uh, kids, I wonder if you know the name of your great-great-grandfather. I wonder if any of you know the name of your great-great-grandfather. Well, we know the name of Noah's great-great-grandfather. If you just turn back left to chapter 5, verse 24, we're introduced to this great man of God named Enoch. And we're told in verse 24 of chapter 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Hebrews 11 says God took him before he died. So devout and devoted was Enoch to the Lord, and this is the family line of Noah. Enoch's great-great-grandson, likewise, emphasizing his piety and holiness, he's righteous, blameless, he too walks with God. Now, you don't want to understand Noah's character as perfect, according to Genesis, but you want to understand Noah's character as full of sincere integrity, genuine authenticity as he's walking before the Lord. You want to understand that in the midst of a world far gone into the darkness of sin, there is but one shining light of holiness. There's one shining light of righteousness alive in the world of that time, and his name is Noah. On Friday morning, just 
48 hours ago, I was over at a local Christian school talking with students about how they can live for Christ amidst a sinful culture. And as I was uh, driving back to the office from that chapel, I thought to myself, how desperate we are, aren't we, for a new generation of Noahs to grow up in the church today. Boys and girls that will become men and women of righteousness, blamelessness, walking with God. I hope that you are praying for such things. And even you want to notice from verse 9 in the Hebrew at the end of verse 9, the the word order is quite significant as it says, with God Noah walked, which is placing the divine emphasis on God's standard of righteousness, not man's standard of holiness, not the world's standard of godliness. With God, Noah walked. And so you see what is going on in the rest of the world, why Noah is standing out as such a shining light. Just glance at verse 11 and 12. Moses tells us, once again, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And you want to see, we mentioned this last week, there is this kind of biblical theology, if you will, of of seeing in Genesis. God sees the world here in Genesis 6, and it's totally, it's completely corrupt. Do you remember what God saw back in Genesis chapter 1? Moses punctuates the account of God's creative work on each day of creation, saying, and God saw it was good. Five times, you get to day six, and God saw it was very good. Now, just a few chapters later, by Genesis chapter six, God looks at the world again, and what does he see? Nothing but complete corruption that's deserving of his utter destruction. God is serious, isn't he, about sin. And kids, you need to learn that lesson early. Students, you need to learn that lesson early in a world where you might find peers and friends that think to flout God's law is no big deal. God is quite serious about sin. So much so, he's going to erase all evil, sinful people from the world. Blot out mankind. As he says to Noah in verse 13, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know, there's an interesting play on words in verse 13. That word destroy is the exact same word in Hebrew for corrupt. So the coming flood is something of a divine irony in its judgment. Just as mankind has corrupted the world, so is God going to corrupt mankind. So serious is man's sin before God. And it reminds me of this story of a Welsh evangelist from years gone by, a man named Seth Joshua. He was soon going to come into a local area to drum up support for Jesus Christ, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in a revival as people often did at that time. Well, news of Joshua's coming kind of went before him into this city, and so his detractors, his opponents, decided to seize upon the event and make a mockery of the gospel. So what they did was they put advertisements all around the city saying, Seth Joshua is going to appear on this night in this theater. Come and hear the gospel proclaimed. Well, none of the people really knew what Joshua looked like. So his opponents had employed this actor to impersonate Joshua, to make a mockery of the God that he loved and the gospel that he proclaimed. And so the theater was packed this night with people eager to hear from Joshua. And then the actor, of course, went about just mocking everything he could related to Christianity and Jesus Christ. And the crowd was eating it up. First act goes by. Second act 
goes by. And it continues this crazy, sinful way of living. And the third act begins, and then suddenly the man who is pretending to be Seth Joshua falls with a thud. Silences this sinful group of people as they soon recognize that he has fallen dead before them. But we know all throughout history, God will not be mocked forever. Eventually, judgment is going to come. And so he says to Noah, judgment is on the way. And you wonder if Noah hears this, he's going to blot out the earth, and he wonders to himself, well, how's he going to do it? You might notice in verse 13 that God doesn't tell him the means of judgment. Maybe Noah thinks, okay, God is going to pour forth heaven. I'm sorry, pour forth fire from the heavens to consume all mankind. Maybe he's going to open up the earth to swallow all the sinners. Maybe he's going to send a black plague to kill them all in their homes. What God is most interested in, notice initially in verse 14, is the vessel of salvation that Noah is to build. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The word ark, it shows up only one other time outside Genesis. It's in the book of Exodus, talking about the shape of the basket baby Moses is placed in to escape the king's wrath in Egypt. Which makes all kinds of sense when you know who Noah is and who Moses is. Both going to be saved through a watery judgment ordeal by an ark to come out on the other side as deliverers, to redeem God's people, to be fulfillments of God's promise that there is going to be someone from the seed of the woman that will come and crush the serpent's head. And so Noah is told, you'll see in the coming verses, if you just glance down once again, meticulously how he's to build this ark. And this is like a mammoth wooden structure. If you can conceive of its size according to the Hebrew measuring of the time, essentially what it means is it's a three-story ship. It's 45 feet high, 75 feet wide, and 100, no, 450 feet long. So if you can encapsulate that, students, it's basically one and a half football fields in length. And inside the ship were to come all the animals that he was going to save and protect. And as best I can tell, if you put those dimensions together in the way that Noah would have built that ark, it very much, strikingly, would have resembled an ancient casket. Because, of course, it's true. Noah is going to have to pass through death in order that he and his family might live. And look at what God says about his family. Just look at verses 17 and 18. God says, Now here's the means of judgment. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but... Remember I told you last week, there's no greater gospel conjunction in all of Scripture than but. But, what does he say? I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Do you see the accent on you? This is the first time the covenant has ever appeared in Scripture. First speaking of covenant grace is to a believer and his household. From this point forward, there is a household principle in God's economy of saving grace. His promises of grace always going to believers and their children. And so as the text continues, God tells Noah to bring two of every sort of animal into the ark with him, enough food that's going to last for roughly 370 days. And you'll see by the end of chapter 6, Noah did this. 
He did all that God commanded him. I wonder, when was the last time that someone could say that of you? He did all that God commanded of him. She did this, all that God commanded of her. God has warned his people. Now you'll see in chapter 7 that God protects his people. Because we don't know exactly how long of a time gap exists between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. There's certainly some sort of time gap. Long enough for Noah to build the ark. And if you know anything about Noah's dates, his years, as it's said in these chapters in Genesis, it's why most traditional scholars would believe something close to 100 years passes between the closing of chapter 6 and chapter 7, taking Noah something like a century to build this ark. However long it actually was, eventually the time has come, the ark is complete, the floodwaters are soon going to be on the way, so you'll see in verse 1, God commands Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. Skip down to verse 4, God says, in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did, once again, all that God had commanded him. A couple of weeks ago on Saturday evening, we had this fall festival here outside in the grounds at our church. And one of the small group stations was handing out water balloons to the children that would come by. And this was not the best thing for me because it generated some long period of time where I was always dodging these flying vessels of water as the children were trying to get the pastor wet. And I successfully dodged all of them and, maybe unwisely so, taunted them in return. (laughs) Because just as the balloons were being taken away, someone snuck up behind me and burst the water balloon all over my back. And if you can understand that image, how much more was the earth beneath and the heavens above bursting forth. Notice verse 12 and 13. Seven days later, on the day of the judgment of God, the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, What you need to know, something is going on within this story that you may have heard of before, or maybe you actually haven't ever seen before. This isn't just a story of God's judgment of the world. It is, but it's also a story of God recreating the world. For just as in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, the waters had come together, dry land hadn't yet been separated from the waters, here it is, the waters of heaven and earth coming together once again to cover the earth in judgment upon the sinful people. So Noah, as he is prone to do, continues to obey God's command. If you skip down to verse 16, the animals entered with Noah, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It's got this tenderness in the Hebrew uh, that reminds me of, of a father who tucks his child into bed. So God, with tender care, is shutting in his people by grace, protecting them from the coming judgment. That, of course, was so great, because you'll see in verse 17, and following for 40 days and 40 nights, the waters pour forth to such a degree, notice verse 19 and 20, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. You see this repetition of all the mountains under the heavens were covered. Kids, what that means, Mount Everest couldn't see the sky, so great was the flood that fell upon the earth. If we understand Hebrew measurements right, that means no stony crag could be seen because at least 20 to 25 feet of water was covering every point in the earth. So total, so complete, so utterly destructive was God's corruption of corrupt sinners in his judgment. Look again at the totality of verse 23. God, he's the primary actor. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah and his family were left. I remember a story coming out in Christian magazines and news circles a couple of years ago when the largest mainline Presbyterian church in our country was beginning to put together a new hymn book. And the committee putting together this hymn book had debated whether or not to put something of a modern classic hymn in Christ alone into that hymn book. Because they were troubled by a line in that hymn that many of you might know. On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So that committee had contacted the hymn's writers saying, hey, can we change that line to say the love of God was magnified? And the hymn writer said, no, please keep it the way it is. So the committee yanked the hymn out of the new hymnal. For them, God's righteousness and judgment was something to remove rather than to rejoice in. And I wonder when you see God's wrath pour forth its flood of fury upon the earth, if you wonder, should we be singing about this kind of a God with adoration and praise? Or maybe you understand what I mean when I ask the question, how could a righteous God not judge the earth full of sin? God warns his people, God protects his people. You'll see now in chapter 8, God delivers his people. Notice verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all who were with him in the ark. So kids, do you think that God actually forgot Noah? It's as though these 40 days have passed and he's engaged in such a compelling conversation with the angels around the throne of heaven that suddenly it dawns on him something like six weeks later, Oh no! Noah! Down there! Surrounded by water! He doesn't, does he? We saw this last week. God, Moses, is attributing to God a human quality of memory. And this actually is used 73 times in the Old Testament. And it always speaks of a remembrance that yields deliverance. It's not about God having a memory as we have a memory as much as it is about God moving towards his people in mercy. And maybe I can encourage some of you in here this morning who are Christians. You are wondering. The enemy is tempting you. God has forgotten you. It hasn't been 40 days. It's been 40 weeks. It's been 40 months. Maybe for some of you it's been 40 years. He's forgotten you. God never forgets his people. He remembers always at some point in his perfect providence his very children. And when God remembers his people, 
It's always a movement of mercy, a remembrance of deliverance. Because you'll notice what he decrees to happen at the end of verse 1 in chapter 8. God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Slowly but surely, the waters falling away. You'll notice in verse 3, we're told this lasted for 150 days. And eventually, in the seventh month, verse 4, and on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Whenever you think of the story of Noah, remember this theme of rest that's everywhere in Noah's life. You remember his name sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. He was named by his father Lamech. Because his father Lamech had this hope of one day Noah would bring rest upon the earth. Surely it's no accident then we're told that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. Not just that. As you'll notice as the text continues, at the end of another 40 days, Noah starts to send out birds to see if they can find rest. First he sends out a raven. This raven is wandering to and fro, can't find any dry land on which to find a place to land. Noah waits seven days. He sends out a dove. That dove, too, can't find any dry land on which to rest. So he waits another seven days. He sends that dove out once again. And you'll notice what we're told in the following verses. In 11, the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Students, you might know that the olive tree in the Old Testament represents peace. That's why we have this saying of extending an olive branch. Here it is, Noah finding peace and rest finally after all the judgment. But not just that, understand the connections again to God's recreative work. When you think about Genesis chapter 1, the waters had come together and we were told at the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the faces of the deep. Here goes a dove that often became the symbol of the Holy Spirit and the rest of Scripture, hovering over the waters, waiting for God once again to separate dry land from the waters. And finally, she brings back an olive leaf. Peace has arrived again on earth. The recreative work is done. So that's why you just notice if you scan your eyes through verse 13 through verse 19, Eventually, it gets to a point where Noah can look through the window. He sees what's going on, and God says to Noah in verse 15, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all of the animals with you. So verse 18, Noah, and following in verse 19, all the animals finally leave the ark. As best I can tell, that's about 370 days after they entered the ark. And some of you know that this year is the uh, 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, the first men to reach the moon. And in commemoration of that anniversary, I've read a, a few different books about the space race, about NASA history, made my way through the movies that kind of were about that very decade. And so invariably and inevitably, I eventually came to Apollo 13, a movie you may have seen before about that ill-fated three-man mission to reach the moon. Not long after they left the Earth's atmosphere, there was this kind of cataclysmic explosion that threatened the life of the crew. They weren't going to make it to the moon. NASA was very much in earnest, and just to get him back alive. 
And so they found their shelter, they found their safety in what was called the limb, the lunar module. And by the end of the movie, when they're getting to the point of re-entry once again to the Earth's atmosphere, they separate from the limb. And one of the astronauts, if you've seen it before, he looks with this kind of glistening, wistful emotion out the window saying, she sure was a good ship. You wonder what Noah and his family thought when they looked back on the ark resting there at Mount Ararat. Surely there must have been something of a wistful emotion on that casket-like massive mammoth structure. For it, in a real sense, was their salvation from the judgment. And we find out in chapter 6 and chapter 8 of Genesis that Noah had cut this window into the ark. And you wonder as the floodwaters rose, as the rains poured forth, as the days and months and weeks went by, as they stared out this window, the various sights that they saw, the various trembling judgments of God before their very eyes, the excitement that came when dry land was visible uh, once again. And what I want to do as we begin to close and reflect even further on this account is use the text as a window into three specific truths that you have to see from Noah and the flood. Because I want you to see, first of all, that the flood is a window into God's sudden judgment. The flood is a window into God's sudden judgment. Thousands of years pass by. Eventually you get to the life of Jesus Christ. It's Tuesday evening of Passion Week, the week between his triumphal entry and his resurrection seven days later. He's teaching his disciples at the end of Tuesday evening what has famously been called the Olivet Discourse. you find it if you turn later on today to Matthew chapter 24. It's about the end of all things. The final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. The, the coming of the Son of Man in judgment upon the world for their sin. And eventually, as Jesus is teaching, he says in verse 37 to his disciples, the coming of the Son of Man in judgment. He says this, it will be as it was in the days of Noah, the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, sudden, swift, and altogether unexpected. I remember reading in my research of Robert Murray McShane this story of him gathering around with some close friends one evening for conversation and as the conversation went eventually McShane kind of looked at all of his friends and said hey do you think the son of man will come tonight? And they went around in the circle and I think not. The next one said no I don't think so either. Yeah, the third one said, no way, he's coming back tonight. And McShane just quoted from Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Maybe you sit in here this morning, do you think the Son of Man will come tonight? No, I think not. They never thought the flood would rise when it did. They never thought the flood would come in the way it did. I, wouldn't, I wonder in the face of God's sudden judgment, if you're complacent, or expectant about what is on the way. The flood is this window into God's sudden judgment. Secondly, the flood is a window into God's view of successful ministry. And you might kind of crane your neck at me, thinking, what on earth is in the text that leads you to say that? God's view of successful ministry. Well, here's why I say that. 
Hebrews 11, chapter 7, calls Noah a man of righteousness. He's in the hall of faith. He gets God's smile because of his obedience. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, calls him a preacher of righteousness. Now, the great Jewish tradition was little more than for a century, Noah was preaching the gospel of salvation through judgment. Obeying God's command, there's this kind of punctuating nature to his obedience, and Noah did all that God had commanded of him. Noah did all that God had commanded him, doing exactly what the Lord had given him with this plan for the ark. All he was doing was obeying the Lord and preaching the gospel. And what happened? Not a single person listened. He didn't get one convert, did he? In the eyes of most of American churches today, he was an abject failure in his ministry. There's more numerics and metrics needed to show true faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Buildings and bodies must increase if you truly are called to minister the gospel. I want to encourage you this morning. Simple obedience, personal holiness, perseverance in preaching the gospel is what God requires of his ministers. What God requires of his leaders is what you too as members of Redeemer Presbyterian Church must demand and pray for of your pastors and leaders. Someone told me once, not long ago, that if Noah came into your church, Jordan, they'd want to kick you out of the pulpit and put him in your place. And I thought, I don't know if that's actually true. For a hundred years, Noah preached, and no one listened to him. Maybe our view of successful ministry is not quite like the Lord's. The flood is this window into God's sudden judgment. His view of successful ministry, but thirdly, and of course, the flood is a window into the only shelter for your soul. You can do this over lunch at our fellowship meal, maybe this evening over dinner in your home. You don't have to meditate long before you realize how the ark is a type, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Meticulously planned was the ark, reminding us that from eternity past, God has meticulously planned the salvation of his people. There was only one ark by which anyone could be saved in the flood. There's only one Savior by which anyone can find redemption, and his name is Jesus Christ. Noah and his family had to enter in the ark in order to be, sh- in order to be saved. You too must enter in by faith into Jesus Christ if you are to escape the floodwaters of wrath that your sin deserves. And if you just glance back to verse 16 of chapter 7, I find those final six words of the verse altogether stunning in their mercy. The Lord started the job, empowered Noah for the work, and the Lord finished it. The Lord shut Noah in. Jesus Christ was going to come, and he was going to be, and he is the only shelter for any sinful person. And you know how we can rejoice in his sheltering, saving work? is because God shut him out. When Jesus is on the cross at Calvary and he cries out this cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because God was shutting him out, locking him out, saying, no, you get the floodwaters of judgment. Floodwaters that quench the breath of every living thing. That's what I'm putting on your heart, into your soul right now, my cherished son. You are locked out so they can come in. He got the misery so that you might get the mercy. He was counted guilty, so you might receive his grace. God locked out his son, so that the way to heaven might be opened to you. He will judge sin, 
And we rejoice that he has judged his son so that any who turn from their sin, any who trust in him, they will find the grace of salvation, welcoming them in to the heavenly place, welcoming them in to the Father's right hand, sheltering them from the storm of judgment that all sin deserves. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are totally righteous, fully gracious, that you love us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you indeed cannot tolerate sin, that you love sinful people like us to such a degree that you sent your Son to lock him out, to shut him up in judgment so that we might be welcomed in. And so we pray, Lord, that you might indeed welcome us into your family. If we haven't been welcomed in before, that you might call us to new faith, to first-time faith in Jesus Christ as we too want to escape the wrath that our sin deserves. So help us, we pray, to hide in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.